if we haven't met, my name's Jamie, guy who gets to open up the scriptures most Sunday, unpack them for the church as we gather in this place. Excited to do that this morning. Uh, as many of you know, we, we took a, a break, pulled off into a rest stop uh, on our journey through the book of Luke these last couple weeks to take a look in an introductory way at the topic of biblical eldership, which I would commend to you if you were out either of these last couple Sundays as we move closer to the establishment of local elders and deacons. However, this morning we're, we're back on the highway. We're back onto the beaten path in this journey through the book of Luke. We've been in this book now for what, close to a year and a half at this point, aiming to finish up by the end of this summer, Luke's gospel account. If you go all the way back into the archives to the very first chapter of this book of the Bible, in the words of one scholar, it's the gospel of knowing for sure. Luke writes that, that the reader might have certainty regarding the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost, a certainty of faith that the reader must profess for himself or herself. But more than that, and I've said this a number of times along the way, Luke writes that we might follow Jesus as our Lord and God, as an outworking of the sure knowledge of who he is, which is what it means to be a disciple. We want to marry this idea of Jesus as Savior and this idea of Jesus as Lord, as one and the same. And, and Luke surely does that for us in his writing. Luke's going to bring us face to face this morning with another parable. There are a lot of them in the book of Luke. A story in this case of a reversal of fortunes, a, a balancing of the scales of justice. A story that once again gets at the heart of what it means to leave our nets, so to speak, and follow Jesus. And so I'll invite you to go ahead and open your Bible to Luke chapter 16. We'll be in verse 16 through the end of the chapter as a forewarning if you're new to our church it's about to get a little heavy uh, we don't skip passages as we work through books of the bible and we're in one of the heaviest parts of this gospel account i've noticed that people stopped sitting on the first couple of rows it's always been kind of a splash zone but people kind of moved in and then we got to the middle of luke and then everybody kind of backed up a little bit and i understand it i get it um I will say this as well as you're opening up that this is going to really press on this passage on our love for the holiness and justice of God as attributes that are just as true of God as his grace, mercy, and loving kindness. And so I want to present that to us up front and get us to wrestle with that a bit as we sit with this passage of scripture and consider the perfect justice of God, the perfect holiness of God and with that, too, the beauty of God's grace, mercy, and loving kindness in Jesus Christ, the very one who is speaking these words in Luke chapter 16. And so let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump in and get after it this morning. Heavenly Father, that we could call you Father is an acknowledgement already before we open up the scriptures together this morning, an acknowledgement of where this story's headed. So that by the time we get to chapter 19 and on in through the remainder of this book of the Bible, there's a cross and empty tomb that awaits, that brings us hope. That as Jesus is going to make crystal clear to us this morning, there is no way that on the basis of our own efforts, that we could bring ourselves into right standing with you, that we could justify ourselves. There's a part of us that would love to be able to do that, 
And we've seen it over and over again in Luke's gospel account. The lawyer seeking to put Jesus to the test, seeking to justify himself. The scribes and Pharisees seeking to justify themselves. What beauty there is in falling at your feet and acknowledging that we're desperate for the forgiveness that can only be found in you, crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me, and that the outworkings of such forgiveness would be a kingdom-mindedness, this beautiful song and dance of the kingdom. I pray that, Lord, you would awaken our hearts to these things this morning. I know that your word doesn't return void, and so I I don't need to ask that it wouldn't this morning. I just want to profess trust that it won't. Spirit of God, we invite you, we plead with you to move in this place as we sit with your inspired word this morning. Would you awaken our minds? Would you awaken our hearts from their slumber? That we might walk out of here changed for your glory and for our joy. Would you do these things even now? Praise you for this means of grace that is the preaching of your word. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So this morning's passage, you've got to go back a few weeks now because of that rest stop. But it comes on the heels of Jesus' parable of the dishonest manager. A parable, if you were around, you may recall, which is about faithful stewardship and undivided allegiance to God and his kingdom. A parable to which The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, responded with self-righteous ridicule, as is far too often the case when man's idols and efforts at self-justification are threatened. As we pick up this morning's passage, Jesus is still addressing the Pharisees, verse 14, who continue to stand at a distance, convinced of their own self-righteousness, suspicious of joy, on the outside looking in. Jesus is teaching here, hearkening back to the blessings and woes of chapter 6, where he declared the tragedy of living according to the way of the world. The curse and tragedy of pursuing life and happiness solely in material things when Jesus invites us to invest our lives in something that, that will stand the test of time. The curse and tragedy of sitting at the table of this world in full-bellied complacency when Jesus offers true satisfaction to those who will come hungry to his table. The curse and tragedy of treating Jesus' teaching with shallow amusement when he offers the only hope of true and lasting laughter and joy. The curse and tragedy of living for the praises of men when Jesus offers the unmerited acceptance of the living God. If you pick up in verse 16 of chapter 16, and this is a continuation of Jesus' teaching in those first 15 verses, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. At first glance, it may seem like a strange teaching to wedge in between two parables about kingdom, stewardship, and allegiance, these few verses. What is, what is Jesus driving at here? Well, for one, he's declaring that his entrance into the world marks a shift in redemptive history, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Remember Jesus' reading of the Isaiah scroll in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth going all the way back to chapter 4, verses 18 and 19? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
That Jesus is the Lord's anointed having come to preach good news to the destitute and needy, to the impoverished in spirit, having come to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the oppressed, to set imprisoned spirits free, free from bondage to Satan, as we saw in the healing of the garrison demoniac all the way back in chapter 8, free from bondage to money, as we'll see in the story of Zacchaeus when we get to chapter 19, having come to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, which of course we see in the, the physical sense. We'll get there in chapter 18 with the healing of the blind beggar on the road to Jericho, one of the many instances of Jesus bringing physical healing to the blind. And, and yet we also know that Jesus came to open the spiritual eyes of blinded sinners that they might see in his very face the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Having come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, hearkening back to the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25, a year when slaves were set free from their servitude. A year when those in debt were released from their burdensome obligations. Jesus having come to bring about the greatest of jubilees. Setting sinners free from the enslaving servitude to sin. Bearing the wages of their sin that they might be freed from that burdensome debt and curse. Much of what we've seen in Luke's gospel account is the essence of the Isaiah scroll. As Luke has gone to great lengths to show us that Jesus truly is the messianic fulfillment of those prophetic words. The good news of the kingdom of God. A kingdom that verse 16 people force their way into. What, what does that mean? It's surely strange in its wording. Well, in line with Luke's teaching Elsewhere, it seems that when people truly come to understand this good news, they'll do whatever it takes to come to Jesus. In the words of one scholar, everyone who listens to him in faith presses with the greatest earnestness, self-denial, and determination as though with spiritual violence into the kingdom. Like the men who tore through a roof, chapter 5, to bring their paralytic friend to Jesus for healing. Or the woman who pressed through the crowd, chapter 8, to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment. It's almost as if people are storming the gates of heaven in Luke's gospel account. Not that the, the kingdom could ever be taken by force, but rather communicating an eagerness on the part of those with eyes to see and ears to hear. He goes on in verse 17 but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of, of God, there were some who were questioning whether Jesus had come to overthrow the law, offering God's kingdom to all the wrong people, tax collectors and prostitutes, those not remotely living in accordance with God's will. Not only that, doing things like plucking heads of grain with his disciples on the Sabbath, causing a ruckus, among those familiar with the law. So that a question emerged, one that Jesus sensed the need to answer. Had he come to overthrow the law? And the answer, of course, is no, as it were, was the Pharisees who were the ones truly overthrowing the law. Irony of ironies. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary, he says it better than I can and, and frames it in, in, in a way that makes my head spin a little bit. He says, the Pharisees were supposed to be the experts in the law, yet they were the legalists, they were legalists and antinomians, anti-law at the same time. Think about this. They were legalists in that they added to the law of God principles and traditions that were not the law of God, 
They kept people in chains where God had left them free. That's what legalism does. They were also legalists, he says, in thinking that they could save themselves through their own righteousness, through their own good works. That is another form of legalism. Finally, they were legalists in trying to find ways to get around the radical demands of God's law. And in this, they actually became antinomian against the law. That Jesus came to fulfill the law by writing it on our hearts, Jeremiah 31, so that we might fulfill the law as we walk by the Spirit. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, showing God's character to all the nations of the earth as we live under his reign in response to his everlasting forgiveness. It wasn't Jesus who was guilty of overthrowing the law. It was the Pharisees. He goes on to prove his point in verse 18 saying, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What a seemingly strange thing to say in the wake of everything else Jesus has just communicated. I mean, is he pausing to offer a brief systematic theological teaching on divorce, a marriage seminar in the middle of a greater discourse? And the answer is no. He's giving an example, a case in point, meant to further show that it's the Pharisees, not Jesus, who were guilty of overthrowing the law. That God's intention in the establishment of marriage from creation was God-glorifying, covenant-keeping obedience. A a sacred, holy, inviolable, one-flesh union that no man should separate. And yet, as the story of Scripture goes, man's hardness of heart led to a culture of easy divorce, which led to a culture of hardship for both women and children, and so a concession was made in the law of Moses in order to bring restraint into the picture. Limiting divorce to certain causes, establishing the requirement of a certificate so as to do away with the flippancy of such a decision. Bringing some semblance of order to the chaos brought about by man's hard-heartedness. By the time Jesus came along, the scribes and Pharisees had made the certificate of divorce the focus while allowing the motivation for divorce to go unchecked. Ladies, you're not going to like this. According to the Pharisees, in Jesus' day, ruining your husband's dinner was grounds for divorce. As was deciding that your wife wasn't attractive to you anymore. Making a mockery of marriage. And with it, a mockery of the law. Legalistic and antinomian at the same time. Jesus goes on. There was a rich man, verse 19, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Here Jesus shifts into the telling of a parable which which is not some standalone story per se, but rather a story meant to further drive home the point that he's been making. In fact, you see bookends in verses 16 and 18 in the end of this parable, this language of the law and the prophets. And right here in the middle of it sits this story. As he tells of a rich man whose purple robes communicate something of his lavish lifestyle. Purple dye obtained by a certain type of shellfish in Jesus' day was the only color fast dye in the ancient world. So that purple became a status symbol of royalty and wealth. We're talking about a, a life of lavish luxury. A man who knew what it was to eat, drink, be merry, and not worry when the tab showed up. 
Keep in mind that Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees, verse 14, who were lovers of money. Verse 20, And at this man's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Here Jesus contrasts the rich man with a man so debilitated that he had to be laid at the rich man's gate, malnourished, covered with sores, happy to join the, the dogs in licking up the scraps at the rich man's table, and yet it was the dogs licking the man's wounds. Though unclean, bringing relief to the poor man while the rich man ignored him in his pain and poverty. I'm reminded of, of the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We weren't uh, too long ago in that chapter, chapter 15. A man so hungry and destitute that he longed to, to sit at the feeding troughs and be fed. A Jewish man in the fields with pigs, ceremonially unclean, ritually impure, Notice that Jesus leaves the rich man unnamed, which was normative for Jesus in the telling of his parables on the one hand, leaving open the possibility that any of us could find ourselves in these stories among the many unnamed characters. Who's the rich man? Maybe I'm the rich man. What's surprising, shocking even, is that Jesus names the poor man in this parable the only character in any of Jesus' parables to be given a name. The Greek version of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God has helped. Makes no sense at this point in the story, does it? It's Jesus giving away the ending of the parable from the very beginning in the naming of the poor man, which must have been a shock to the Pharisees, assuming that they hadn't come to expect to be shocked at this point by virtually everything Jesus said and did. I mean, we've already seen the parable of the Good Samaritan, where it was the Samaritan man who helped the man on the side of the road. That was shocking. Jesus has done it over and over and over again throughout the course of his ministry. He goes on in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Jesus fast forwards to the death of both the rich man and the poor man. The rich man receiving a proper burial, Jesus tells us, surely in the finest of linens, the most luxurious of tombs. Meanwhile, Jesus says nothing about the burial of the poor man, does he? His body likely tossed into the valley of Hinnom, a sewage and trash heap just outside the city where dead animals, unburied criminals were disposed of, a place of perpetual burning as the never-ceasing fire would keep the the air from becoming tainted with the horrific smell of garbage, sewage, and, and even death. In a great reversal, it's the poor man who's taken into the presence of God given a seat at the place of honor, Abraham's side, robed in righteousness, never to know hunger or pain again, seat at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb, not because the man was poor, but because, as we'll see, he trusted God in God's word. Meanwhile, it's the rich man who finds himself in the eternal, unquenchable valley of Hinnom, 
The place of perpetual burning. Do you see the tables turning here? Taken to Hades, which Jesus here brings together with the New Testament understanding of hell. The place of anguish, verse 24. The place of torment, verse 28. Far worse anguish and torment than anything Lazarus had known in this life. It's an incredible reversal of destiny. A man having gained the whole world and having lost his soul. Here recognizing Lazarus at Abraham's side, indicating that he knew who Lazarus was in the life before, he just didn't care. Like the priest and the Levite who passed by the man on the side of the road in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Like the Pharisees who were scrupulously fixated on certain aspects of obedience down to the tithing of the most insignificant of herbs, chapter 11, verse 42, even going beyond what the Mosaic law required at times, legalistic, all the while neglecting the weightier matters of justice and the love of God, antinomian, having managed to to miss the law's heart-piercing demands by way of their insulated rules, and with that, a failure to truly love God from the heart, In addition, they had failed to embrace the heart of the Good Samaritan in welcoming strangers, in caring for widows and orphans, in helping those in need. Jesus continues with the story in verse 24. And and he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The rich man appeals to his Jewish kinship in referring to Abraham as father. If you go back to chapter 3, some of you may remember this. There were many Jews who expected those of, of Gentile descent to receive John's baptism in the wilderness as a means of ritual cleansing and being brought into the covenant community. An act of cleansing for which they themselves thought they were exempt, believing that they were already clean because they belonged to God's people. John boldly declaring in his ministry out in the wilderness that no one is exempt from his or her need from the cleansing work of the Lord, setting the stage for the cleansing work of Jesus, the narrow door through whom we enter the kingdom. It was a shock to the system then when John said it back in chapter 3, and it's a shock to the system now when Jesus says it here in chapter 16. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Many will cry out to Abraham, Father, Father. The rich man cries out to Abraham for mercy, though he had refused to extend mercy to others in his life. Even now, even now, think about this. Expecting Lazarus to do his bidding, to act as a slave of a prideful man in the throes of hell, because even the fire of hell itself cannot subdue the arrogance of a wicked heart. Pride's a scary Scary thing. It goes on in verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Abraham addresses the rich man, Child. Which may have been a tenderness on Abraham's part, And yet a haunting reminder that kinship doesn't mean a seat at the table. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to men 
standing in his estimation on the outside looking in, though they think they're on the inside. That God's salvation is not by cultural privilege nor religious pedigree. We must respond to the invitation to the great feast. No number of boxes could we possibly check to get ourselves in right standing with the Lord. Christ Jesus, the narrow door, chapter 13. The only way into the great banquet of heaven. The moral of the story, it's not that rich people will be poor in the next life and that poor people will be rich in the next life. I mean, Abraham himself was rich in this life, right? As was Job, a man blameless and upright. And let's not forget the the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea who would go on to make sure that Jesus himself received his own proper burial. It's not about the, the poor becoming rich and the rich becoming poor, nor is it even solely about the rich man's treatment of Lazarus in his poverty and refusing to to be generous with his wealth, though that's surely one outworking of the deeper issue underneath it all. It's ultimately about the rich man's neglect of God's word and with that, the rejection of God's lordship and kingdom. This is just one expression of that rejection. It's the very indictment that Jesus has pronounced on the scribes and Pharisees. As he's just made plain in verses 16 through 18, and will make plain again at the conclusion of the parable. Here Abraham declares to the once rich man, you made your bed. Like the wealthy man with his bigger barns in chapter 12. Believing himself to be secure. Having established enough in the storehouse to eat, drink, and be merry for years to come. All the while failing to consider that he might not live to see tomorrow. Verse 26, and besides all this, Abraham says, between us and you is a a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from, from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. This is not so much meant to give us In the words of of one scholar, a topical lay of the land, so to speak, as it pertains to the places of of heaven and hell and their juxtaposition. Again, this is a parable, not necessarily meant to give us a literal description of the afterlife. Similar to the the parable of the great banquet in chapter 14. As we all know that, that heaven, as represented in that parable, is more than the inside of a house. Now, the parable of the the rich man and Lazarus, it's meant to communicate the separation, the permanency of separation between heaven and hell. There are actually stories like this throughout the the ancient world, stories telling of a reversal of, of wealth and poverty in the afterlife. Jesus is not unique here in that sense. One in particular being what many believe to be uh, an Egyptian folktale, which was in circulation around the time of Jesus' life and ministry. And yet, this is where Jesus is unique in that he tells the story differently. In other traditions, the, the person in anguish would ask to send a message back to the land of the living and would be granted permission. However, in Jesus' telling of the story, Permission isn't granted as there are no second chances nor opportunities to evangelize others in death. Hebrews 9.27 It's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. We talked about this before in Luke's gospel account. That the weight of eternity is at stake 
in man's receiving or rejecting the gospel of the kingdom. There's a gravitas about what Jesus is saying here and has been saying for chapters now. The man goes on in verse 27. Then I beg you, Father, as he responds to Abraham, to send him, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Notice that where Lazarus was once the beggar, now it's the rich man doing the begging. Another picture of the the balancing of the scales of God's perfect justice and holiness. As the rich man knows that his closest loved ones, they're on the same course. Their lives on a fast track to the same destiny as his. Again, asking that Lazarus might be sent to serve him in warning his brothers of the, the anguish and torment that awaits Assuming that with just a little more information, his brothers might respond differently. They might live differently. And with that, don't miss this, a a subtle hint of self-justification on the rich man's part in alluding that he himself would have lived differently if he had only had a little bit more information. But Abraham said, and this is key, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They, as did you, already have all they need, says Abraham. The law and the prophets. Again, the problem is not that the rich man and his brothers were rich, but rather that they rejected God's word and teaching. As was the case, again, with the Pharisees in rejecting Jesus' word and teaching. The Pharisees had all they needed standing right in front of them. The messianic fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Just like the older brother, by the way, in the parable of the prodigal, as I've said before, he was so close to the feast that he could smell the meat on the barbecue. He was so close that he could feel the thump of the music in his bones. And yet he was on the outside looking in as the story came to an end. Right in front of them stood Jesus, the Messiah. And he said, verse 30, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Trust me, says the rich man. If they see Lazarus having returned from the dead, they'll turn from their sin. They'll turn to the Lord. I know it. But he said to him, Abraham did, verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I'm reminded of the the lawyer who stood up to put Jesus to the test all the way back in chapter 10, which feels like forever ago, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A man well-versed in the law, like the Pharisees, seeking to justify himself like the Pharisees. Verse 15. How did Jesus respond to the lawyer back in chapter 10? He affirmed the man's basic understanding of the law as his cited references to the Mosaic law. They, that, that wasn't the issue. The issue was with how far the man was willing to go in applying the command to love his neighbor as himself. Desiring to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? What's the loophole? Rather than falling at the feet of Jesus in humble repentance. 
He had everything he needed, as did the rich man in this morning's parable, along with his brothers. In the words of one scholar, if a man, says Jesus, cannot be humane with the Old Testament in his hand and Lazarus at his doorstep, nothing, neither a visitant from the other world nor a revelation of the horrors of hell will teach him otherwise. Again, it's, it's the Pharisees to whom Jesus tells this story. It wasn't Jesus who was guilty of overthrowing the law. No, it was those well-versed in the law, hiding behind a veneer of religiosity. Oh my goodness, in the American South, the takeaway for us. They had all they needed standing right in front of them. The messianic fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and they missed it. That's sobering. A resurrection, no matter how miraculous, and you know where I'm going here, would bring them to repentance. It surely didn't bring the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son to repentance, did it? Whose younger brother was dead and is now alive. A resurrection, chapter 15, verse 24. The older brother representing the scribes and the Pharisees. Convinced of their own self-righteousness. Angry at God for offering, uh, Jesus for offering God's kingdom to all the wrong people. Suspicious of joy as Jesus presented it. On the outside looking in. Lovers of money who were treating the people Jesus was welcoming in with the same kind of contempt with which the rich man had treated Lazarus. All the while rejecting God's word and teaching and in doing so a rejection of the kingdom of God. I mean, for many, even the empty tomb to come wouldn't prove to be enough. The greatest resurrection of the dead that's ever been. The great fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's the case for many today who want to put conditions on belief in God. Again, we've seen that too in Luke's gospel account. I'll follow you. Just let me go bury my father first. Let me go say goodbye to my, my loved ones. This parable, it teaches that life after death awaits all of us. And, and we know this. This is not new information. Heaven for some. Hell for others. The two eternally separated from one another. This parable also teaches that there's no second chance after death. As God will right every wrong in a perfect display of justice. We have all we need right in front of us. The word of God revealing the son of God. If only the lawyer back in chapter 10 had come to the end of himself. In acknowledging his own failure to love as he should. Crying out to Jesus. I don't love God as I ought. I don't love others as I ought. Son of David have mercy on me. That's the right response in the gospel accounts. Instead. His desire was to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? The heart of the money-loving Pharisees. Again, legalistic and antinomian, anti-law at the same time. Do we know the mercy and forgiveness that's found in coming to the end of ourselves? We have to keep coming back to that question because Jesus keeps bringing us back to that question. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, 
yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. He was right there in front of them, all that they needed. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, here's the good news, the gospel, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Are you kidding me? Who, was, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The doctrine of adoption, with all of the wonders of the glory of that doctrine and its outworkings and flowings, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. It would be quite assumptive for me not to present the question, have you received him? Have you believed in his name? Do you know the forgiveness of Jesus and the life of love and gratitude that flows from the forgiveness that's found in him? If not... The response is, is simple. It's to repent of your sins and to trust in him for, for forgiveness. To like the many in Luke's gospel account, cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. I see in this morning's passage a mirror that points to my desperation for a sin-bearing savior. I trust in you. And with that, a bowing at his feet in glad submission to his good and glorious kingship. Because you cannot divorce Jesus as Savior from Jesus as Lord. It's a package deal. Out of the ashes of self-abandonment and the receiving of Christ comes a life of love. In grateful response to the true forgiveness that can only be found in him. See it in the sinful woman forgiven several chapters back who fell at the feet of Jesus, washing his feet with her tears, pouring out her oil upon him. Sacrificial generosity, lavish love, the outworking of a kingdom ethic born out of the forgiveness that's ours in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. It's a song. It's a dance. You can't corral it you can't tame it in you can't fence it the pharisees wanted to desperately it's too beautiful to do that with can't do that with the kingdom it's unruly as justin said when he talked about the mustard bush if you're a christian i'd, I'd leave you simply with this you have his word you have his teaching what might it look like for you to take a step in more deeply aligning your life with Jesus' teaching and kingdom, knowing that he who's been forgiven much loves much?